Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, featuring 2nd Edition AD&D Players and DMs Options books. In this special series, we're taking a close look at these books that are often considered D&D Edition 2.5. On the sixth day of the Edition Wars, my DM gave to me Combat and Tactics Part 3. Yeah, man. What do you have to say for yourself, sir? (laughs) Well, last time we uh, covered two whole chapters of this book, and I'm damn proud of us. Um, So that gets us up to chapter four, uh, Weapon Specialization and Mastery, and uh, it leaves us with the obligation to finish this book. So strap in. So this chapter, chapter four, Weapons Specialization and Mastery. So, so, so the the summary of this chapter is, you know, how you get all of these weapon proficiency slots, and then, like, you have your weapon, and you don't really want to change your weapon, but you still get proficiency slots. Wouldn't it be nice if you could do something with that? And so they do, and so you just get more and more and more mastery. Uh, so it walks us through. Um, you, you know, expertise, specialization, mastery, high mastery, and grand mastery. Sure. Uh, and also fighting style specializations, and um, and a lot of this. Um, I kind of feel like we might have covered in uh, an episode on a, on um, attack rolls, but maybe I, maybe we well, didn't. I- what I was actually going to say was um, perhaps the, the way to cover this chapter is to actually point out what's different about it compared to the core second edition rules. Because weapons, proficiencies, and specializations are in the core. Sure. So in core rules, uh, you don't have a concept of expertise as a separate step. Uh, what you have is non-proficiency um, and man second, ed- second edition is soul-crushingly stingy on weapon proficiency compared to um, every other edition. It is wildly stingier on weapon proficiency than every other edition because fighters start with actual proficiency in up to four weapons. Not all weapons of this category. That's that's a thing. Um, and then above that, you have proficiency and specialization. And specialization is tightly restricted in uh, in vanilla second ed uh, to fighters, and they have to choose specialization at first level, uh, which makes no sense. Specialization as a benefit of advancement is far more sensible and narrative embracing, but whatever, <laughs> it's fine. Um, it, I don't know why they wanted to do that. It doesn't make any sense to me as, as a thing. And ultimately the, the drawbacks of uh, getting stuck with a weapon you aren't specialized in just means that you're not going to see magic items of that, what weapon type as being interesting treasure and 
and and let's be honest there there was no need really to hobble the fighters anyway they there they really already wasn't. were underpowered after you know after the beginning few levels um though in fairness special weapon specialization is pretty cool sure but but to to restrict it though but to to restrict it is what I'm saying is what was not necessary. Um, getting more attacks a little bit faster is pretty cool. Yeah, it didn't didn't need restriction. That was not called for. Um, so so that's that's your base state, and so this shifts it um, more in the direction of um, well, we, we've talked in another. Uh, episodes in this sort of special series about how other classes get to buy weapon specialization um, if they really sink the points into it. And as we've discussed, nothing in this chapter is going to be integrated with any of that content. That's not a thing. Um, You just have to figure out for yourself uh, how and if it applies. But um, it is... Much less. Oh, yeah. You can change your specialization. You can, only speci- you can only be specialized in one weapon at a time, which is very dictionary definition of specialization. Sure, no problem. Um, but um, you can spend um, two extra proficiency slots to uh, change your weapon specialization. So that's a terrible deal. Oh, um, yeah, and the the cost actually scales up from there. Yeah, you don't don't ever change your specialization. It's not worth it. Just glare at your DM every time a weapon that isn't your specialized weapon it comes into the game, because that will definitely improve your table experience. Um, it won't, by the way. So, I think the part of the problem with this chapter for me is it's written as if it's providing these extra things for you to take, you know, take, uh, take a hold of and to use, to make your character, you know, more, it's, it's meant to be, it's trying to show it as here's more options, but actually the specialization starts becoming so restrictive that it actually reduces your options. Well, like baseline, baseline specialization is already restrictive in this mm-hmm. way. The, the special, the, the restrictions, here on weapon specialization are technically a loosening because you can alter your specialization at all. That's just a terrible rule. Um, and it, it sticks you with so much buyer's remorse as a, as a player that it's a terrible rule. Um, so, so the weird thing to me is they offer you expertise separately as a step between proficiency and weapon specialization um, and it gives you the more desirable aspect of weapon specialization not the less desirable it gives you the extra attacks yeah uh, okay so you want me to keep spending for the less valuable part why anyway um, it's fine it's just Oh, I like that it at least acknowledges skills and powers here. Um, 
Note that skills and powers allows your character to customize his class and receive abilities he normally could not attain. Under these rules, uh, paladins, rangers, and multi-class fighters can specialize at the cost of sacrificing other abilities or advantages. Um, so, I, I mean, uh, here's another thing that it introduces, though, later later on in this chapter. It, it, it brings in special talents, which is basically feats, right? Alertness, ambidexterity, ambush, endurance, camouflage, fine balance, iron will, dirty fighting. Right, for sure. Um, right. And, and we've talked before about how all of the non-weapon proficiencies are also feats. They're just, other than blind fighting for the most part, they're less combat-y feats. And this is sort of knocking down that uh, that wall and saying, yeah, no, uh, go ahead and spend your uh, proficiency slots on this too, including initial ratings, right. which, but, but there's, but there's even, you know, trouble sense. Right. And so I just, I want to make a point about this, this little trouble sense section, because it says, you know, sometimes it's known as danger sense. This gives the character a chance to detect otherwise undetectable threats. The character's trouble sense comes into play when the character is threatened by a danger they have not noticed yet. Okay, fine. Then it says, it it goes on in, in true second edition style and says, well, the DM should make the trouble sense check in secret. If the character succeeds, then they are then it changes how they're surprised and whatnot, which is, you know, a, a, a really stark reminder of, of the time and the context that this book was written in. Um, it's making strides and oh, then, sure. then there's that. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, the mechanical implementation of trouble sense is very kind of, well, I guess you did the the least you possibly could, sure. Um, and, and you know, a lot of the a lot of these uh, features are also class features you could buy as a fighter in skills and powers. So the integration with skills and powers is especially thorny in this chapter. Um, like what I was, what the the text I didn't quite get out from the paragraph I read earlier. Uh, explicitly goes on to say, well, you shouldn't actually give uh, rangers, paladins, and multi-class fighters specialization. You should let them have expertise instead. And all I can think is, all I can think is, if as a player, I spent my extra points to buy specialization and I sacrificed other class abilities to get that, and then you tell me, Oh no, you're still not a single class fighter. You can't have real specialization. Uh what you get is the the lesser version expertise instead. I'm flipping that table. Bye. No. You you just you broke your word to me. Right? Like you literally gave me a bait and switch. No. So that that, that would be a, a real deal breaker for me. Didn't we say this about something about the beginning of the book too, about how, you know, uh, the integration uh, of skills and powers and combat and tactics for being released so close together. I mean, they were only released a month apart in the same year. Yeah. Um, 
and the, so you know you with there's a reasonable expectation that a large portion of the population that's going to use these books or look at them at all are going to have them both at the same time right and so the the integration uh, how to how to work the two in together is definitely not seamless and in some places it's not intuitive at all right and it's a little thorny. It's a little thorny, I have to say. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, anyway, moving on from there, um, as is standard for Second Ed, uh, each kind of uh, missile weapon has its own unique specialization rules. And I don't actually know why they do that other than um, really, really loving very involved tables of attacks per round and uh, attacks per uh, alternating round. But, sure. Um, There's a realism argument to be made around firearms that, while it's really hard to learn to reload a firearm that much faster, but the, the gameplay that is lost there is just, it's not worth it. Like breaking down each each kind of firearm so that you have a different um, rate of fire as a high level specialist with a snap lock, as opposed to a wheel lock horse pistol guys, guys get a grip. Well, but once again, though, this is the book that once, to show the ever so minute differences, minute differences between, you know, one thing from another. Why would you choose the the wheel lock belt pistol other than the snap lock? Well, in this case, there's no difference in the level of specialist, right? So, so you're looking to the the damage die or whatever. Yeah, probably. So, so after that, we get uh, weapon mastery and grades of mastery, which uh, seems to generally just carry larger. Um, oh, so so right, mastery is it inflates your attack and damage bonus. You go from uh, plus one attack and plus two damage to plus three plus three. Um, it, you're, it's basically, you basically get giant growth uh, from Magic the Gathering. Um, I'm sure that's I'm sure that's accurate. Um, and then, then we move into high mastery, which increases your crit range down to um, sixteen to twenty, which is crazy. Um, but that's only if you're using the optional eighteen to twenty uh, crit threat range that is found elsewhere in this book. Which and you still have to hit your opponent by a margin of five or more. Um, um, it improves your uh, overall range for all the different ranged weapons. And then Grand Mastery, finally, um, you've now invested piles and piles of slots into this one weapon, and uh, yeah, you, you can't really go around changing your change your mind about that. Um, and uh, what gets me about this is just that it's D&D, like the right answer is longsword <laughs> by such a huge margin. The right answer is longsword, and it's so regrettable. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong, I love longswords. Um, they're, they're, you know, enormously fun weapons. But 
to be this restrictive, like, I, I don't know. I, it drives me nuts. Um, so, right. So, so grandmasters gain one additional attack per round above and beyond the specialist rate of attack around flare level. So you just get to throw out all kinds of attacks. Um, oh, and you also increase your weapons damage die and your knockdown chance. Uh, we talked about the knockdown business um, back in chapter one, I believe. And uh, there's the, the whole thing about, well, now a longsword uh, goes from a D8 weapon against smaller medium targets and a D12 weapon against large targets. Because remember, kids, that's a thing in in second edition. Weapons do different amounts of damage based on the size of the target. Uh, well, it goes up by one die size, so now it's a D10, D20 weapon. Sure. Sure. That? Sure. Um, and it's knocked down dies increased to a D10. Um, if the weapon causes multiple dice of damage, all of them are increased. So a two-handed sword in the hands of a Grandmaster inflicts 3d8 points of damage on large targets. Sure. That's, I mean, that's rad. Don't get me wrong. If I can sign up for that, let's let's go. But that's crazy. <laughs> um, and it means you're just getting um, very uneven levels of benefit from, from different weapons. And so there's a, a big system mastery uh, like push going on here. You need to pay attention to, you know, whether you expect the campaign to go long enough to get grand mastery because um, it makes a difference. I'm not sure what level you have to be to get grand mastery, but right. So what mastery is fifth and um, yeah, looks like second slot of mastery until sixth is third until ninth. So right. Grand mastery is a ninth level thing uh, at, at soonest. Uh, just because of when you earn enough slots, yeah, yeah, um, and there's a, a discussion of how maybe you should, you know, uh, lock all these levels of mastery behind quests, and if it weren't so tied to, you know, level advancement, and you've got to be exactly the right level to do this thing, then I'd be all about that. But as it is, it's just going to be an excuse to. Like make you wait another three levels because well you, you didn't, didn't quite finish, finish that quest, quest yep. by the time you hit ninth level mm-hmm. so I guess you have to wait till twelfth. <laughs> this is my unamused look at that GM, um, and so then we kick into fighting style specializations, um, which is much the same except that there's not multiple levels of mastery for these, um, but you can. Uh, specialize in a fighting style to gain additional benefit. I mean, this is very, very feat-like material. All of the mastery levels are your uh, greater weapon focus, greater weapon specialization sort of feat chain. And, you know, all of this kind of material showed up at some point in, in third edition, um, your uh, your weapon and shield style stuff. Um, let's see, uh, gives you a free uh, shield bash each round. 
without losing the shield's benefit because the shield bash by default makes you sacrifice the shield's AC. Not that shields are worth a whole ton of AC <laughs> in second, but that's okay. Um, actually, I think this book might modify that upward. Depends on the shield, yeah. Right, so yeah, you, you have uh, different levels of you have different levels of AC bonus depending on your proficiency in the shield. Right. That's not a thing in core second at all. Shields just grant plus one AC in, in vanilla second ed. But this has a whole um, proficiency like bracket for each shield size and then a maximum number of attackers you can apply that uh, shield bonus to AC against in a round. So um, a medium shield, which is probably the most normal kind of shield, uh, is three points of AC. And that's, um, you know, math tip, a lot better than one. Um, so so not sacrificing that much AC and also getting a shield bash. Well, yes, I would like that. Please, thank you. Um, One-handed weapon style um, grants you functionally the benefits of a buckler, um, but against all enemies. Uh, and that seems really perverse to me that the buckler can only be applied against one attacker per round. It only grants one point of AC, but by having nothing in your hand, you get plus one AC all the time because you specialized and you can spend another slot to increase that to plus two, even worse. Um, See, that's an example that, that one handed weapon style thing that that's an example of a, a little segment here that is, mechanically explained but the rationale is absent so 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 the thing is that it looks like a well we just wanted you know we needed there to be a one-handed weapon style and we have to give you some kind of mechanical benefit for it sure and their, their whole concept is to support, you know, uh, rapier and open hand swashbucklers. That's what they're trying to get at, um, or sort of a, uh, you know, longsword and open hand brawler. And and I do get that. It's just um, it feels like within a single chapter they didn't integrate the idea and think it through. So let's let's move away from this chapter. Um, unless there, unless there's something specific you want to say about any of the uh, the the talents, the, the the basic feats. No, I, I think that I've gone through the uh, the fighting styles in more detail than podcasting really calls for, and I mean the talents are they're, they're cool ideas, they're cool things to be able to buy, and I'm not gonna lie, they do add a lot of interest to the fighter for all of those. Uh, proficiency slots or uh, character points you're getting that aren't doing a lot of other interesting stuff for you. Um, so so in that regard, I am very much in favor of this. Um, as a sort, sort of note looking forward, we're going to be seeing a lot of this again in um, the DM's option book. Um, th- this is, I think, reprinted pretty close to verbatim in that book. Um, but with more Oh yeah, I think it has more, doesn't it? I I believe that. Yeah, why not? 
So, and then the, the then this cha- transitions into chapter five. But before that, there's another nice full page color piece of art uh, that I that I quite like. Uh, no, I like that a lot too. the The textures here are are very good, and um, the visuals are extremely weird. It is saying a lot about what they think second edition could look like at your table mm-hmm. because there's an airship. Yes, but it's but it's but it's a boat with a keel and everything. Yeah, and and it has a giant uh, balloon attached to it. Uh, that is made of various different cloth pieces of different colors. Okay, so so not only is that true, it is also not the weirdest thing in the picture. Right. Well, and then if you look directly down from it, there's this tower. And at the bottom of that tower, there is this place where the, the wall has been broken up. And there is like some kind of a very large person or something. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if they're going into the fire or out of the fire. It's a very interesting Right, and the the human uh, pyramid thing yes. that the cheerleaders to the have built yes. against the wall is amazing. <laughs> Where but the siege and the siege machine is coming up right behind them, and the right. drawbridge is about to open on them. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, in fairness, also, uh, we should be slapped for describing it, an image in a podcast. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> well, that's why I, that's why I, I tried to say the page number of the last one. So I'll tell you the page number of this one, page eighty-one, uh, because it is it is just a very um, I like it. I like the image. It is just uh, some some of it is very bizarre. Uh, there's skeleton soldiers uh, fighting, presumably alongside uh, the humans. Uh, at the bottom of the picture. Oh yeah, I think sure. I think the cheerleaders stacked up on the wall are actually supposed to be skeletons. Those are skeletons, yeah. And then there's, uh, and then there's, yeah. It's 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 very interesting. Um, uh, and and then we get to your your favorite chapter, and I know it is. Oh, unarmed oh, combat. I'm, I'm in so much pain, and it's only <laughs> okay. going to get worse. You get five minutes. Okay, so so how many different? Unarmed combat systems do we have? That's what I want to know. So we have um, pummeling, we have wrestling, um, we have well, overbearing. Bra- brawling. You, you miss brawling. Oh, I miss brawling. Yeah, brawling. Good. Yeah. Um, martial arts, subdual attacks, um, and then a whole new set of, uh, let's go ahead and call them feats. Like people understand better what what we mean we, if we just call them feats. This says martial arts talents, but we all know. So yeah, that is a ton of different non-integrated styles that are not going to have much of anything to do with each other. Yeah, so it's kind of like a it, it's it's kind of like a here's how uh, several ways you could do it. Uh, pick one and use that one in your game. Yeah, and expect to run into each of them potentially. Right. Uh, um, but yeah, like overbearing um, is, you know, much like a helicopter mom um, expanding in later chapters. Just a- a- as you age, it's just more and more and more. Yeah. Um, I- 
I also want to point out that every chapter in this book, there's a there's a uh, the first page of the chapter says you know chapter whatever, and then the title of the chapter has a little intro, and all of them have this little section that says, "Does this belong in my campaign?" And I, I just want to say that the one for this chapter is especially unhelpful. So I'm going to read it to you because it's only it's like a paragraph and a half. So here's how it goes. It says, it says the material in this chapter is an extension of the combat options in chapter two, and it is intended for use with the player's option combat system presented in chapter one. This chapter can be used by itself. However, brawling, subduing and martial arts can all be incorporated into a campaign separately or together. And that's it. That is your absolutely unhelpful <laughs> I mean, in fairness, I can I can deliver that answer much more succinctly. <laughs> I can do it in two little letters. Yes. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> and and like the thing is, I I love the the action dynamic that you see in you know in um in action movies of weapon in one hand and punching bad guys with the other hand, um, you know, maybe use the sword to drive the weapon out of the way and you punch with your other hand or whatever. I love that stuff. And this is not going to help you with it. Although I I will say, and I'm going to be a bad podcaster again and comment on another picture from page 85. (laughs) This is the first picture I have seen of a very rotund pirate. Yeah. Uh, and he looks like he, he looks like he's wearing wooden shoes. So you know, uh, <laughs> there's some really good art in this book, and then there's some art that's uh, a little uh, questionable. Um, but it's all enjoyable. So I, I can't I can't knock it too bad. I, I'm not an artist at all. But uh, but that that's a it's a little a little piece of of interesting little art of shirtless rotund pirate punching a uh, some kind of fighter person in plate mail so you know we'll see <laughs> well ken frank if you're listening to this podcast i apologize on sam's behalf <laughs> hey i didn't say it's not good i said it's a good piece of art it's just not uh quite what i expected <laughs> <laughs> uh so i don't really have a lot to say about this chapter other than i just you know it, it's it's Probably not anything. I, I don't ever remember using any of it. Yeah, let's let's do the thing where we protect our not explicit rating and just just don't. I'm a I'm a lose uh, I'm a lose it in a bit. I mean, my language is bad enough anyway. We don't need to provoke <laughs> me. It's fine. I'm I'm trying to be good. Well, it does have it does have the Lord. good the good. The martial arts talents in the back, you know, with with the uh, yeah, the martial arts talents in the back. Those, are fine. those are good. I have no problem yeah. with those. Um, so let's move on. Well, to, okay. To, oh. Backward kick is kind of dumb. Ba- backward kick is kind of dumb. Well, that's okay. Uh, but uh, in terms of of yeah, okay. Uh, but it's meant to be like you know Bruce Lee style martial arts cinematic. You know, sure, just drilling down on facing and provoking opportunity attacks for uh, attacking someone you know that is on the other side of you right but I, I ain't got time for yeah. that so let's um, let's move on then to chapter six but yeah yeah <laughs> it's yeah mm. 
All right. So, so chapter six is critical hits. Um, and, um, <laughs> man, the, does this belong in my campaign is almost phrased like it's saying. No. Did you let me read the first yeah. sentence? It's, it caught, it's, here's the first sentence. While the rest of this book assumes that you will be playing with the full critical hit tables and rules. Okay, so first it starts off by telling you the previous 100 pages. Assume that you'll be using this. And then it says, but you'll find that this chapter can be completely disregarded with no ill effects. <laughs> but the other 100 pages you just got done reading, assume that you will be using yeah. it. But there's no ill effects for ignoring it. <laughs> like, so, so I have – I respect modular rules that can be – that don't hook into each other enough that things break if you drop them in and out. And that's been a conscious part of fifth edition design, but it's not an evidence here. Like, man, things are going to get weird. If you are, are um, trying to use this book without this set of rules, because it does assume them. Um, and like, like we saw that in the weapon mastery section we just covered, like it's, yeah. it's pretty explicit to a lot of those effects. Uh, really I will is. say one other thing though about this: does it belong in my campaign section? It says there is one thing that's really important, and that is that if monsters suffer critical hits because you allow your players to use them, then the player characters should also suffer them. In other words, you should apply the same rules to the monsters and the PCs. Yep. And, you know, it's weird to me that you have to remember to say that, but uh, I certainly agree well, with it. Uh, their, their, their follow-up is, otherwise game balance quickly goes out the window. So the thing is, remember that uh, previous to this, well, I don't want to say previous to this, uh, second edition, remember, went a long way toward trying to equalize things uh, so that so that things were more transparent to the players, and they could have a reasonable sure. ability to predict or make a decision about whether they want to engage in a particular situation or combat. And so there was this sort of uh, idea of, well, if it's balanced, uh, it's easier for me to be able to predict that and make that decision in a fair way. And so there is some sort of attention to balance, although not not anywhere near uh, balance like what you see in, say, fourth edition. Um, yeah, but there is that. So, so, so right. I, I, I mean, it is important that uh, this whole chapter can be dropped in and dropped out uh, with as little alteration as possible because it has two different critical hit systems. Um, and critical hit system one um, is uh, something that we would recognize very, very much in um, fifth edition. Actually, uh, you you double the base damage dice of the weapon, and then you uh, add your flat adds. Well, yep, that sounds familiar. Um, you don't double any other variable dice that you are rolling for damage, uh, such as backstab, that's fine. Um, this is 
because there's a, a uh, crit range of uh, 18 to 20 um, and you have to hit by five, it's fine that you're going to be critting more often and you just don't get the crit value of your your backstab or whatever else you have going on. Your, your I guess, flame tongue weapon might be extra damage dice at this point. Maybe not. I don't remember. Um, it's very simple. Critical system number one. It's very simple. There's no wounds. There's no injury. There's no uh, sustained damage or anything like that. Uh, and it takes about a half a page to describe. And, and then you get critical hit system number two. <laughs> yep. And then you get critical hit system number two, which um, is the rest of the chapter. Um, and I, I mean, I think that both someone looking to um, attack the system and someone looking to praise it would say that it looks like it came out of Rollmaster. Um, <laughs> uh, and honestly, the critical hits uh, and, and damage charts of Rollmaster are either your thing or they are not. And if they are not, then jog on. This chapter is not going to help you in any way because um, like, it wants to delve into the many varied and horrible things that weapons do to bodies. And like, if you want to run a D&D game about how uh, violence is ugly and uh, your character will probably be unplayable uh, by about third level, then here you go. Okay, so let me give you exa- two examples. Okay, so the first thing you do, uh, I'm using the bludgeoning versus humanoids table. The first thing you do is you roll a d10 to find your location. So let's say you roll a six or seven, that's the torso. Now you move over to the location torso table for your severity. It's weapon versus target size. Uh, weapon size is less than target size, weapon size is equal to target size. Weapon size is greater than target size. Weapon is two sizes larger. So it's D6, 2D4, 2D6, or 2D8. And um, there's no add to that roll. So nine means you got hit in the torso. Your ribs are broken. You have some minor internal bleeding. You cut your move in half, your movement rate, and you get a minus two penalties to to attack, okay? If you calculate a 12, your torso is crushed and the victim is killed. <laughs> like, So what's going to happen is, you know, if the weapon is greater than the target size, that's the only time you're going to get those instant kills from uh, crushing the torso. Um, but yeah, this enormously favors big two-handed weapons. I mean really, really favors it. I cannot understand how someone would continue to want to use smaller medium weapons uh, with if this chapter is in play. Just goodness. Um, well, and so, so you have uh, a, a whole page of bludgeoning versus humanoids, a page of bludgeoning versus animals, a page of bludgeoning versus monsters, a page of piercing versus humanoids page of piercing versus animals do you get the idea here uh so you've got uh nine ten geez ten pages because you've got slashing piercing bludgeoning you've got humanoids and animals i mean 
it it is a lot and um those uh you know, 12 results on a lot of these are are indeed uh immediate death but some of them aren't and it's kind of random kind of kind of unpredictable uh, it just depends the weapon type and what the author felt like writing that day i guess um i, I mean a, a 12 against a limb um destroys that uh that limb most of the time and restricts movement and major bleeding and so on. Just, I, I'm sure I don't know how anyone survives to even intermediate levels uh, with this system in place, if there's any significant amount of combat. But if that's the game you want to play, like... Right, well, because um, the other thing is, how does any of that heal, right? Well, so, I mean, there's rules for that, but... Right, but I, I just mean in terms of... Right. Yeah. Like yeah. that's that's what I'm saying. Like when you start talking about th- these these tables, definitely do invoke a very role master style. Yep. And then when uh, you start talking about healing, well, and, and, and you know, I've listened to uh, Robin Laws talk about um, Glorantha to a pretty fair degree, and all of the you know uh, limb severing horror that is very consciously intended to deter players from choosing combat until they have a, you know, regrow limb spell. Um, and I mean, you can definitely, uh, decide to decide, you know, that's what you want from your D and D and, you know, have a good time. It's, it's not what I'm after personally. Um, this is, this is gory and horrific and that that could be a cool thing, but I probably wouldn't use D and D for it. Um, I think it is you know, even within the, you know, attempt to, to drill down to realism that combat and tactics is chasing. I think this is a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's uh, sort of, big and overwhelming and the chapter's very hard to get an overall sense of in, in short order, just because the description of the different levels of injury of, uh, grazed, injured, broken, crushed, shattered, or destroyed and severed. They're big walls of text. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why I wanted Uh, to just give two very basic like examples. And some of these things are really, um, I mean, they're going to cause a pretty, pretty, as you say, gory dis- description of of what's happening, right? It's not just, oh, I got punched and my rib hurts. It's, you know, the the snout of this creature is injured and they are doing this and there's all this blood and there's this over here and severe bleeding. And it's very evocative of, of something that is different from... Yeah, I mean... Um, I could kind of see using this in a um, sort of meat grinder game where you want to do something sort of reminiscent of um, Darkest Dungeon where you're going to be going through a lot of characters and uh, maybe you have several sessions where you have a new character in each session and uh, then by about the fifth or sixth session, 
you kind of continue playing whoever's most viable after all that. But, you know, you don't necessarily get hit with a bad crit every session. Just when you do, it's over. Very possibly. Right. So so if if you want crits to be uh, to, to have a player convinced that they might be done playing that character, um, <laughs> this is the system for you. And, I mean, critting on 18 to 20 is... Whoa. Or 16 to 20, if you have that particular... Or, or 16 to yeah. 12, sure. <laughs> but you're, you're probably not going to be facing monsters that have um, Grand Mastery. That's, well, sorry, High Mastery. Probably not a right, thing. Right, sure. So do you want to move on to the next chapter? Yeah, let's... Uh, mm. uh, so, so chapter 7 is Weapons and Armor. Uh, and it does not have a should I use this in my game section. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, but this is uh, largely a uh, a rehash by uh, historical period and region, um, though not historical period by region. It's either historical period in Europe or region for non-Europe. And quite literally, it just yeah, it just takes the uh, the the weapons and puts them into tables labeled either the region that they're talking about or the time period they're talking about. Right. Uh, and, and I mean, the, the text is self-aware that it's doing this. It talks about the fact that um, unlike the previous categories, which trace the semi-historical progression, etc., like it, it knows that it's only looking at one sort of impressionistic, you know, summary of uh, all the time periods you might be pursuing. Um, it's, it's tables and tables of weapon costs, and I mean, the, it is strange that they only list costs for all of these tables so they can go through all the time periods. Like, I don't know, that, that seems like an odd way to organize the information. But anyway. Well, because later on, you have the comprehensive tables, right? Exactly, right? I, I really feel like that probably could have been Oh, sure. I- I'm agreeing with you. I, I think the format is uh, a-, a little odd. Um, and they do the same thing for all the suits of armor. And, oh, God help you if you really chase piecemeal armor. But but, but this, again, I think is them trying to like draw in people who loved um, uh, you know, Rollmaster and Glorantha and a lot of the, the you know, uh, smaller, high-brutality, high-realism uh, fantasy games. Um, or maybe this was just written by someone who thought those games were the cat's pajamas and wanted to see that in their D&D, and they weren't specifically targeting those fan bases. Who knows? Or um, a mix of both. Perhaps they loved it so much themselves, they thought perhaps they'll pull some D and D players into the love of that material as well, which is fair. Right. And, and I think that, you know, whatever else I may say about all of this, it, it's, it's hard to see it as, you know, anything other than the writer believed in what they were saying. Right. That I have no doubt in. Um, but when you get to the comprehensive weapons table, uh, you know, so many, 
uh, stats have been been added in this book or get specified here that it is a, a just immediate bleeding from the eyes kind of what am I even looking at chart? It it is it is four pages of small print and uh, let's see one two three four five six seven eight nine ten and eleven columns. So sure, so sure. Like you have a knockdown die for every weapon, and you just need to be going through all of these and you know picking your 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 weapon type and everything based on which variant rules your your uh, DM is using and like there's um, superscript letters for this whole uh, list of footnotes. Twenty types of pole arms. <laughs> uh, well, it's D and D. What do you want? I know. <laughs> um, but what also kills me is the just totally randomized use of uh, shading to help you trace lines across. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Some of them are three. Yeah. Some like, of them are two. What, what was the thought there? How did that help? <laughs> yeah. What is this? Yeah. So, yeah. Some of them are one. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah. I don't know. Like, I don't know. This is, this is just sort of a, a good visual summary of my, my takeaway from the whole book. This is I- I- intense. Um, dense stuff and so uh, the rest of the chapter is you know a paragraph or two or in the case of oil uh, quite a few more uh, paragraphs on that that thing as a weapon Um, sword also uh, god be praised gets plenty of paragraphs which let's be fair some of some of these so, some of these, some of these, uh, these descriptions, if we're fair, are they're good because people don't know what these things are. Well, and, and that's absolutely fair. Uh, Lord knows this is how I learned what a bunch of these weapons were, because I would never think to look up some of these these letter combinations because they're literally not in English. So what, why would I even know about that weapon? Um, because this book came out when I was a kid. Um, uh, I don't know. This is one of the more uh, one of the more like approachable and appealing chapters to to my fifteen year old self, um, because at least I could immediately visualize the use at the table for all of this, um, and I could appreciate the. Yeah, the the visual narrative of piecemeal armor, or all these different armor types, and I could appreciate the you know, blatant power gaming of um, trying to get the best AC that my money could buy. Um, you know that that's appealing in its own right. Sure, that's, that's fine. There's nothing nothing wrong with you know wanting something that's going to you know let you customize really, really deeply and squeeze out a little extra benefit, I guess. But um, this is 
this is a lot to try to try to get through. Um, in fairness, reading pages and pages of details about uh, cool um, medieval weapons from Europe and beyond, I'm still here for that. That's that is my deal. I'm, I'm not going to lie. That that part I, I'm totally into. <laughs> like uh, a whole new variety of cool swords I've never heard of. I guess I know what I'm doing for the next half hour. Let's go. I am. I am totally that person. Um, yeah, I'm here for this too. Uh, this is this is my favorite chapter. Uh, and, and they do the same with armor descriptions, which, like, if anything, I like even more than a, a huge chapter on weapons. Just put that in my veins. That's great. Um, but we also get weapon groups, uh, which is an idea that has uh, surfaced in other evolved. editions. It has evolved. Other editions <laughs> since since this one, yeah. Um, and uh, well, because here the weapon groups are by oh, they're sort of separated by weapon type almost. You know, club clubs, maces, and fails, flails, fails. <laughs> clubs, clubs, maces, and flails have uh, basically a a, a a shaft, right? Right, right. There's sort of your your parent category and your child category as you then you drill down to the individual weapon, and you know there's the, the sort of interesting thing about this is just um, you can sort of look at these and see how uh, fifth ed uh, you know weapon design thinking with its much smaller list list of weapons sort of consciously pulled back one level of detail, right? Um, so that you instead have, well, okay, you have a few of the different axes, but uh, not nearly as many as this book has. And then only one pick and uh, only two of the hammers and so on. Um, like, it's just telling you any of these weapons could be a stand-in for other weapons in, in that category. And for uh, game purposes, they have basically the same mechanics. So there you go. Right. Yeah. Right. And um, then the ways swords get categorized is just some, some hot nonsense, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. Yeah. No. All right. No. Um, yeah, <laughs> moving along, um, moving along. But, but like I said, reading uh, multiple pages on armor is is still my deal. I'm I'm a man who would walk half a day to see a good armor, um, and um, then we get into you know horse barding. Sure, sure. I I will read about more armor. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> And an awesome picture of a war dog with yep. armor on. Fido is looking very, uh, very dapper and ready to go. And uh, considering how distressed players will get if uh, something happens to uh, their their, uh, their their attack uh, attack pup, <laughs> their I, pet. I am zero percent surprised. <laughs> yes. That is exactly what I would do in a D and D game 
if armor were not absolutely terrible for a dog's ability to move and all that weight weren't going to hurt its back because dogs don't do that. But that's okay. Um, I want to go back to something uh, before we move on. Uh, and that is uh, that it at the end of uh, the description of all the weapons, it has a little section on weapons and ability bonuses. And it points out that, that generally the rules are that a character applies their strength bonus to any weapon that's powered by their own muscles. But then it says, well, let's look at this example of a 16th level dart specialist. It's ludicrous to allow a high strength character the full benefit of their muscular power if they insist on using tiny little weapons like darts. And then it goes on to tell the DM how to address this. And basically, it tells the DM to cap the total strength bonus that that <laughs> PC would get. Which it, which makes me question – now, I understand they're trying to like make sure that nobody outshines another PC and that they're trying to have this sort of pseudo-balance thing going on. But really what this does for me is it makes me think, why in the hell did you just spend 10 pages on charts and tables <laughs> – explaining all of the differences and all of the little tiny minutiae around these weapons, if you're then going to follow that up with telling the DM to go ahead and nerf something if you feel like it's too st- doesn't make sense to you. It's too strong. What that, you know, in other words, if I was that player who, who created the 16th level dart specialist, Right, and I put all my, uh, you know, all uh, all my uh, everything into strength because I knew that that's a thrown weapon, and so it gets to add my strength bonus. And then my DM comes to me at 16th level and says, "Well, you know, I know you put a lot of effort into this, and you put a lot of resources into building this character this way, but it doesn't make sense to me because those darts are really small. So I'm going to cap your ability." Like, yeah, yeah. What? I mean... Talk about flipping the table, right? Oh yeah. Like a player who got to the point where that was a thing, and and now you spring that on them. Oh no! My my experience of players, and my experience as a player is just how am I supposed to feel okay about that if we haven't discussed that from the beginning of the game, and you're now going to spring that on me? But. Eh. Yeah, so moving along. <laughs> moving along. Uh, so, so, right, that brings us to the end of Chapter 7, Weapons. Um, I think for both of us, by far the most uh, approachable and engageable uh, chapter of this book so far. Yeah, and at uh, this time in my life, I was playing more than I was DMing, so this chapter was like... You can read this chapter, and even though the tables are full of minutiae, you can read it and understand what's happening, and it feels good to read it and feel like you're gaining some knowledge about the game without having to actually try to memorize the you know the tactics and all that crap in the second and first and second and third chapters. Um, although I ended up going back and doing that too, but that's beside the point. <laughs> sure. Uh, so now we get into chapter eight, which is siege warfare. And um, 
I think that you know, questioning whether this belongs in your campaign is is fine, but at the same time, I without getting into the, the details of the chapter's rules, when you need this kind of thing, this is the kind of thing that you need. It needs to be a fairly you know engaged and involved rules module because you're in a very different kind of game situation than ordinary play. And so I'm I'm here for a good amount of this, though as we're going to see, this is this is a lot. And um Well, they do a good job, generally speaking, of laying it out, explaining the problems and issues, and trying to use as many diagrams as possible to show what they're talking about. But they, they they run into the same problem that we ran into way back even in chapter one when they start using these diagrams. And it's very difficult to to use to use, you know, these the maps and miniatures and whatnot, you know, in those other previous chapters we talked about. It's very difficult to use those for individual combat. When you start talking about major sieges, now it's even more difficult. Right. And to me, there's very much a sense that this chapter wants to um, fully fold the you know the wargaming scenario back into D and D and mm-hmm. get some of that uh, wargaming DNA back into the game, but it is very involved and it is it is very much in the thought pattern of uh, you know. Uh, people standing around the wargaming table at uh, uh, you know that's their dining room table or their game shop and engaging with it that way and not engaging with like, the the general form of of D anD D because you have the extra you know scatter die rolls or, or uh, indirect fire rolls for well I was aiming for this square but I hit this square instead kind of kind of business. At that point, you're full on in the miniature wargaming milieu, and you're not as much concerned with what I what I would consider D and D, which is an individual representing an individual character. Right, um, and you know, there, there's so so for me, the the good parts of this chapter are the same as chapter seven, right? Um, there's this interesting. Things to learn about uh, medieval and early modern warfare if you don't already know this. Well, but really all the way back to um, the ancient world. Uh, th- there's, there's things to learn from this if you don't have you know, an existing foundation of knowledge. Uh, things like all the business about different vehicles, um, how does as fighting platforms? I mean, this is trying to help you run um, uh, Return of the King, right? Um, in, in interesting ways, it's just um, it's not going to be easy to use at the table because it's so, so big and um, it's, it's such a bulky chapter. Uh, well, let's be honest. It's it's talking about a different game, yeah. right? 
Oh, absolutely. At this point, it's 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 kind of uh, analogous to the dueling thing we talked about earlier, where if I'm playing with a group, there's a reason I'm not going to use those dueling rules, because you have to pull everybody out of it and play this mini game that only deals with an NPC and one character. In this case, you're pulling everybody out of the regular game to basically set up a war. And now you're no longer an individual playing in that game. Now you're a commander commanding parts of armies. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not, I'm not bashing it. It's great fun, but it's not usually what one has in D&D. And they say as much in the very beginning. They say, you know, most campaigns aren't going to use this. And you said it the best. You said, well, this is exactly what you need when you need it, but if you don't ever hit that situation in your game, then you don't need this at all. Um, I mean, the idea of um, defending uh, Minas Tirith against the you know, hordes of uh, Sauron and Saruman, sure, I am here for this content. Mm-hmm. It's just good mass combat systems are hard to come by and I'm, I don't think they've cracked it here. Um, I mean, getting games to change scales gracefully is mm-hmm. not something that most of them do well. Um, yeah. I, you know, I've got a few that I'd point to as uh, games that make changing scale one of their core functions. And so that's the thing they do gracefully. Um, Blades in the Dark is specifically here to uh, change scale uh, when needed during play, and mm-hmm. I think that's gracefully, yeah, yeah, gracefully. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you know, th- this offers a bunch of different things about uh, different kinds of uh, of siege weapons, and that's that's pretty cool. Um, it's it's going to come up so rarely that any issues with its its function will mostly not matter. Um, but um, but yeah, um, there, there's a ton of different stuff here, and um, this is a kind of variety that is its own benefit to me. Uh, where where a lot of the weapon chart is just you know you could have boiled this down. These two weapons really are similar enough that I don't need to engage with their fine distinctions. The things here are for the most part different enough that, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to see them distinguish the way they are. So I'll say that for it. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the strength of this chapter lays in uh, the way that they describe the different types of say war machines and the uh, you know the different ideas they have about you know using vehicles in combat um the just des- descriptions of you know what siege actually is uh is is greatly interesting to me um and you know uh, you know I, I think that's where the value is, and I, that's pretty much all I 
can say about it. Um, I think that D&D at various different times has tried to do mass combat and siege warfare uh, to various effect and to various success. Um, this one is not maybe the most successful. It's probably not the least successful. Uh, right. I, I think that um, it, it's hard for me to get a sense of it in a brief way. Uh, but the only reason that I wasn't learning most of the, the content in here for the first time when I read this book is that I learned it for the first time reading a different D&D book. Um, you know, some of the, the uh, blue cover stuff. Um, the companion uh, box? That well, that's that's a little, uh, a little before my time, old man. Uh, <laughs> castle guide, whatever. <laughs> uh, hey, man, the the castle guide, uh, DMGR two from second yeah. edition, was uh, my my faithful companion for many nights of reading because um, I don't remember a time in my life when I was not in love with the idea of castles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, that's why the companion box set, the teal box from Beck Me, yeah, was so. Like in my mind, it was one of the, one of the ones that I just kept rereading and rereading and rereading because it had the castle creation and you know stronghold creation, and war. Yeah, for sure. Rules in it. I so. uh, I, I did actually pick up um, a companion, I believe, when I was. Uh, working on uh, an article on domain management mm-hmm. for tribality. Yeah. And uh, that one I really found to be ahead of its time yeah. Um, yeah. by comparison to like a lot of uh, things that came far, far after it. Just it was trying to get across a lot of complicated ideas in as simple a way as it could. And um, it's still pretty involved material, but uh, less crushing than it definitely could have been. Um, anyway, back to combat and tactics. Uh, there's a couple more proficiencies here because sure. Um, but but what I want to say about this chapter is uh, finally just. If you're going to sell fighters special abilities that only appear in Siege Warfare, and it's those abilities are just the right to engage with Siege Warfare, uh, you need to really think about what you're doing because like, don't make Siege Warfare a big enough part of the game to support those fighters and then not sell those abilities to anyone else. That's just that's just poor form. Uh, so I think that, you know, this big section, if you're going to have a very kind of um, Pendragony or Crusades-y campaign uh, that's going to involve a, a whole ton of siege warfare and, you know, uh, reducing castles through continual bombardment and so on, which are the kinds of rules that that this chapter is giving you, then that needs to get spread around. You don't need to have to play a fighter specifically just to get on that train. So 
uh, I, I will say that a good mass combat system is that, that you can use in D and D or other personal scale games is one of those kinds of holy grails that I've seen so many games pursue, and um, it's it's hard to think of one that I, that I thought hit the mark. So I'm I'm not going to hold it against them too much that this is also not doing it. So finally, chapter nine. Uh, so monsters. Yeah. Um, so th- the point of this chapter is just to integrate a lot of the rest of this book with monsters and, uh, you know, across creature types and intelligence levels and morale levels and alignments. And I mean, yeah, it's absolutely necessary. This chapter had to exist with the rest of what goes on here. I, I have no doubt about that. Um, especially with the critical hit charts, uh, but also in uh, giving you tactical notes. And I think that doing tactical notes on different creature types is uh, something that probably, you know, is widely needed, but most monster entries cover those well enough on their own. Especially in second edition. I mean, second edition had huge, you know, in some cases, two-page spreads, you know, with descriptions and habitat and ecology and behavior and all these different entries, which was glorious, but... Yeah, so so I'm not sure it's as needed here, um, but they go for uh, fairly high degrees of specific detail because the critical hit charts, it is not obvious what you would do with a centaur, for example. Um and its answer is to, in fact, engage with sometimes it acts like a human and sometimes it acts like a monster. And that's where we are. Um, and that chapter is fairly short anyway. So Yeah. And then you get into uh, how uh, critical hit severity uh, fits in with different uh, – monster natural attacks. So, sure. Um, and that's pretty much the book. That's pretty much good tactics for you. <laughs> um, yeah, this is this is a book that I uh, completely skipped uh, at the time. I picked up a copy of it uh, much, 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 much later. And so it's the only one of these that I don't have in hardcover. Um, huh. Interesting. It was the first, it was the first of the, uh, of the extra 2.5 edition books that I got. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't remember where I got this soft cover anymore, but, um, uh, I mean, I've had it for many moons now, but, uh, yeah, but yeah. Um, I, I think still trying to cast my mind back to second edition play. I, I think I still regard it as being particularly, um, awkward and, and unlovely. Um, it, you know, I don't think I'm just judging it with sort of uh, the years of experience. Yeah. For my group at the time, it, the, the very much the overarching feel was 
awesome idea. We love the idea of this, but in play, it slowed the game down too much for us. And we ended up very quickly not using a majority of what was in there. Um, But I guess I could say, but we did appreciate it for, for what it was attempting to do in a lot of cases. Um, So, yeah, I don't (laughs) Yeah, I loved I loved the weapon table. <laughs> that sounds sounds kind of stupid, but um, you know, just that portion made me feel like I understood some things yeah. and um and but in in in-game use of the majority of the rest of the material in the book was not was not high. It was not high, highly utilized. Yeah. At least not not for very long. Yeah. Um yeah, so uh, tomorrow, uh, at least for, for you listening to it, uh, we will be talking about uh, players' options, spells, and magic. And uh, Lord knows if we'll be able to get through that one in, in any faster than we have these. Uh, well, it gets three episodes, same as yeah, everything else. Because, <laughs> man, it, it brings the weird... It is it is yes, by it far and away the weirdest of these books. All right. Well, where can people find you on the internet? I can be found at uh, brendastoddard.com or on Twitter at brendastoddard. I also write for Tribality. And uh, that's that's my main deal. I'm on uh, Patreon at um, Brenda Stoddard. Awesome. And I am at DM Samuel on Twitter and RPGMusings.com and The Tome Show and Patreon.com slash RPGMusings. And boy, we hope you're enjoying this series because uh, this was a lot of fun to record. But we know it's a big commitment to listen to these episodes 12 days in a row. (laughs) Just think of it as your your new holiday tradition to listen to us go on about this again. Look, mate, three generations ago, my ancestors forged the Great Blade Skull Splitter. With it, they won the Goblin Wars, the Hobgoblin Wars, the Orc Wars, the Demon Wars, the Elf Wars, and the Gelatinous Cube Wars. And that one doesn't even make sense, because they don't have skulls. Now, all these years later, the legend of the Great Skull Splitter grows. Offering dice to help you create your own legends, Skull Splitter Dice makes the highest quality dice beautiful dice of both plastic and metal. Want to roll bones that look like bones? Or just something with enough heft to split the skulls of your enemies? Skull Splitter Dice has that and more. Check them out now at SkullSplitterDice.com slash Tomeshow and use the coupon code Tomeshow with all little letters and get 15% off. Now get out there, split some skulls, and build some legends.